Well, good morning. It's great to be with you today. Two weeks in a row. That's crazy. <laughs> I'd like to take a moment to welcome everybody here in the auditorium and to my friends in the venue service. It's great to have everybody at Kearney Evangelical Free Church today. My name is Tim Stratton, and as many of you know, I was the youth pastor here for nearly a decade. And several years ago, I started to notice that many of the high school students and the college students were struggling with doubts regarding the existence of God and Christianity. Many of these students didn't just struggle with these doubts, but they were eventually defeated by these doubts. It led many of them to, to leave the church and become atheists or just not care about God and Christianity at all. Well, this sparked a desire in me to learn how to confront these doubts and really to respond to their good questions with even better answers. So today, I work for a nonprofit organization called Free Thinking Ministries, and my job is to interact with doubts every day. These doubts impact the youth culture, especially today more than ever before because of social media, YouTube, and the internet in general. You see, this is where the battle of the mind is fought. The front line of this war is found on Facebook and Twitter. This is where I spend so much of my time fighting for the faith of your kids and your grandkids and those you love. Last week, we discussed the so-called problem of evil. We looked at the number one reason for atheism in the world today, the belief that God and evil are logically incompatible. But we were, we were able to see that this objection is no good because a perfectly good God has very good reasons for allowing evil in this world, namely love. Well, this morning I want to interact with another one of the greatest reasons for skepticism in today's culture, science. Over the past 10 years, I've heard it proclaimed quite often, science has killed God. Now, of course, those espousing this claim don't mean that in a literal sense. What these atheists hope to communicate is that science has removed the need for God, or stronger, that science has proven the non-existence of God. Statements like these lead many people of all ages to think these two concepts, God and science, are mutually exclusive, that they're somehow at war with each other. Well, today, I address the question, can God and science both be true? Why is this important? Well, even if you personally have no doubts about God, maybe science doesn't cause you to doubt God, I guarantee that your kids and your grandkids and your neighbors and those you love are being pounded with this message that science has proven God does not exist, or science has proven that Christianity is false. Those you love are being hit with this message all the time. 
This leads those you love to either have a weak faith at best or at worst become atheists. I've seen it happen all too often. So, will you be able to defend the minds of those you love? And perhaps these doubts go through, through your mind too from time to time. Will you be able to take your thoughts captive before they take you? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 10.5 to take our thoughts captive to obey Christ. And in Colossians 2.8, he tells us that we can be taken captive by bad thinking. <laughs> so will you be able to take your thoughts captive before they take you? And will you, help, will you be able to help those you love do the same thing? So with that said, I encourage you today to pay close attention, take good notes, and <laughs> before starting, we better pray. Join me. Dear God, we invite you here today to impact our lives. We ask that you would prepare our hearts for this message and especially prepare our minds. We want to glorify you with our hearts and our minds. Help us to think in such a way that brings you glory. Help us, God, as we study and consider science. We pray, Lord, that you would move us to see a bigger and more beautiful picture of you. Move us to awe. Move us to worship God. Lord, impact our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. When one doubts the existence of God because of science, remember three things. There's three things that I want you to take away from today's message. The first is this. Science is the wrong field. Before continuing, let me properly define and explain what I mean by both science and God. Let's start with science. Science is commonly understood to be the study of nature. Well, then it follows that a scientist is one who studies nature. This means scientists have specific expertise in understanding nature through observable data through the scientific method. This is the field of a scientist. It's what a scientist does for a living. It's their job. A chemist, for example, can share insights about chemistry, but they begin departing their field when they make statements about other fields of science, such as biology or physics. A scientist is completely out of their field of expertise when they comment on literary criticism or art appreciation or politics or ethics or anything other than things like physics, chemistry, and biology. Now, that's not to say that a scientist can't have intelligent thoughts or opinions on these other subjects, but it's important to note what the letters following their name, that PhD, gives them expertise on which to comment. So, simply put, science is the study of nature, thus a scientist is one who studies nature. Now, that's what science is. With that in mind, let's talk about God. As I like to say to all of my skeptical friends, if God exists then he's the creator of all nature. So, if God is the creator of everything nature, 
then it logically follows that God cannot be something found in nature. God, then, by definition, must be something other than nature. That's what philosophers call supernatural. So, it follows. The one who studies nature, a scientist, is simply in the wrong field if they claim their credentials give them any special authority to speak about the existence or non-existence of anything supernatural, like God. I mean, you might as well ask a plumber what they think. Nothing against plumbers. <laughs> plumbers are extremely smart. They have knowledge of things that I don't have. That's why when I have a problem with my pipes in my house, I call a plumber. I'm not qualified to handle, <laughs> handle plumbing, right? But a plumber is not going to find God in the pipes under the sink. Not going to disprove God with the pipes under the sink. And in the same way, a scientist is not going to find or disprove God by doing physics, chemistry, or biology. It's simply the wrong field. Now, a scientist here in town at UNK once objected to me and said, But Tim, science is the only way to know. Science is the only way to gain knowledge. Really? Well, I asked, why think a thing like that? <laughs> How do you know that? Did you gain this knowledge that you're giving me in the lab? Did a Petri dish and a Bunsen burner provide you with the knowledge that science is the only way to gain knowledge? Of course not. He's offering a knowledge claim that cannot be gained through knowledge and telling me that science is the only way to gain knowledge. In philosophy, we call that a logical error. <laughs> His statement cannot be true. It's called a self-defeating or a self-refuting statement. It's similar to this. If I said, there are no sentences comprised of more than three words, how many words is that? Ten. What did I just tell you? <laughs> There is no sentences comprised of more than three words. Should you believe me if I tell you that? No. It's a self-defeating statement. It must be false. So the first thing to remember when doubting the existence of God because of science is that science is the wrong field. <laughs> With that in mind, it makes just as much sense to think that the existence of Pop-Tarts should cause you to doubt the existence of God. The second thing to remember is this. Science proclaims the glory of God. Let's see what the Bible has to say about studying nature. Let's start with Psalm 19, 1 and 2. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork day after day, his creation pours forth speech, and night after night, it reveals knowledge. So, according to the Old Testament, we gain knowledge by studying God's creation. That's called science. Let's go to the New Testament, Romans 1.20. Paul says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. So he goes on to, and says that 
through, through what he has made, through his creation, so that nobody has an excuse. Through God's creation, nature, no one has an excuse to not believe in God because God's revealed himself through nature. This is what we call natural revelation. Well, let me ask you this. If God reveals himself to humanity through nature, then don't you think we ought to study nature? Don't you think we ought to do science? (laughs) So both the Old and New Testament encourage us to do good science. Now, you might be scratching your head because didn't I just say that science is the wrong field? (laughs) To prove or disprove the existence of God. If so, then how can studying science, studying nature, proclaim the glory of God? Especially, how in the world can Romans 1.20 be true? How can we learn about God by studying nature if science is the wrong field? Well, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Although science is the wrong field... To prove or disprove the supernatural, science points to God. Science is not a prover. It's a pointer. Let me explain. You see, since science is the study of nature, it's impossible to directly prove or disprove the existence of anything supernatural scientifically. With that said, however, science can and does point to and provide indirect evidence of the supernatural. Here's something I like to remind myself of from time to time. In fact, I've written this on one of those yellow sticky notes and I've put it on my desk so I can constantly see it. Uh, Take a look at it with me. Science provides support for premises and philosophical arguments reaching logical conclusions with supernatural significance. All right, that's a mouthful, right? (laughs) All that means is this. Science supports logical arguments for the existence of God. Consider one of my favorites, the Kalam cosmological argument. The Kalam, in my opinion, is one of the most intriguing arguments for the existence of God. Allow me to offer a brief overview. Much like the moral argument that I offered last week, the Kalam consists of two easy-to-remember steps, or what we call premises, that lead to a logically deductive conclusion. Uh, That just means that if the first two statements are true, the third statement will follow like mathematics. It must be true if the first two statements are true. Let's examine the Kalam cosmological argument. The first step goes like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. What does that mean? Well, I explained it to my son several years ago when he was much younger, and I said, Ethan, this just means that whatever has a birthday has parents. (laughs) Whatever begins to exist, whatever comes into existence, well, something caused it to come into existence. The next step of the argument simply says the universe, what we mean by all nature, began to exist, and the conclusion follows. Therefore, the universe... All nature had a cause. Now, I've explained and defended the Kalam cosmological argument at length on my website at freethinkingministries.com. So I encourage you to click around there if you want to delve deeper into this topic and looking into this argument. But my purpose this morning is to simply demonstrate how science 
supports both of the first two steps of the argument. Science supports these things, these premises, that ultimately leads to a deductive conclusion, and from that conclusion we can infer rationally that God exists. I'll explain. And let me tell you this. You and I, we can, we can all do this without touching a Bible. That's the cool thing. So if somebody doubts the Bible, we can show them that God exists without even referencing it, just by using logic and science. Let's talk about the scientific data that supports the Kalam argument. The first premise, all scientific data supports that. That is to say that, that what we've learned through science gives us good reason to think that the first step of the Kalam argument is true. Science has always shown us that if something begins to exist, there's always a cause for it coming into existence. Like I said, if something has a birthday, it has parents. In fact, that's what the entire enterprise of science is all about, studying cause and effect. For example, the decay of uranium causes lead to come into existence. So what about the second step of the argument? All right, science supports the first step. There's not one shred of scientific evidence that would cause us to doubt that premise. Let's go to the second. Does science support the universe began to exist? Now, when I debate atheists, I like to support this step of the argument using logic alone. I don't need science, be that as it may. <laughs> science overwhelmingly supports the second step of the Kalam cosmological argument. Now, you got to take careful notes right now because we got a test on this next week at church. And 50% of your grade at church is based on how well you do on this test. So take good notes, okay. Aren't you glad we're not graded here? <clears throat> All right. Here's the scientific evidence that supports the second step of the Kalam. Uh, take the second law of thermodynamics, for example, and entropy, uh, Big Bang cosmology. All of this supports that the, the statement that the universe began to exist. And if that's not enough, three of the leading physicists in the world today, Arvin Bord, Alan Guth, and Alexander Vilenkin, constructed a theorem known as the BGV theorem for Bord, Guth, and Vilenkin, which reaches the same conclusion. All nature had an absolute beginning. Now, keep in mind, these guys aren't even Christians. I don't even know if they like their conclusions. In fact, I don't think they do. But they're just doing their job. They're just doing science. Dr. Guth, the G in BGV, concluded that there was a mother of all beginnings and stated, even within the context of inflation, there would still be somewhere an ultimate beginning. Dr. Vilenkin, the V, and BGV makes this point even stronger. Follow along with me on the screen as we examine his words. Vilenkin says, and I quote, it is said that an argument is what convinces reasonable men and a proof is what it takes to convince even an unreasonable man. With the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is no escape. 
they have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning, end quote. So you see, we have scientific evidence that this is where science comes to an end, so to speak. This is where science stops. Because science cannot tell us anymore about what caused the universe. But don't worry, logical thinking can finish the job. This is what we call metaphysics, or simply beyond physics. Think about this. It doesn't make any sense to say that nature existed before all nature existed. <laughs> so if nature began to exist, it follows that something that is not nature caused all nature. Are you tracking with me? Therefore, you see, the cause of all nature, what we mean by the universe, <laughs> must be something other than the universe, other than nature. Again, this is what philosophers call supernatural. It just means other than nature. So, right off the bat, you see, the study of nature, science, points to the supernatural. A supernatural cause of the universe. Let's continue thinking logically. It starts to get very exciting. If the first two steps of the Kalam are true, it leads us to the conclusion, therefore, the universe has a cause. Well, the universe, what is it? It's defined as all nature, all time, and all space, right? The space-time universe. And everything that could be tested or discovered scientifically. Science tells us that all of this stuff began to exist. That should blow your mind a little bit right now. Now, given this description, the cause of the universe cannot be anything that fits within the definition of the universe. You see that? And since it makes no sense to think that the universe could cause itself to begin existing, that's logically incoherent, then it follows that the cause of the universe must be something beyond the space-time universe. From this, we can reach some rational inferences. Think about it. The cause of the universe must be supernatural because if all nature began to exist, whatever caused all nature to begin existing could not be nature. The cause of the universe, the cause of the space-time universe must be spaceless because if all space began to exist, then the cause of all space could not exist in space logically prior to creating all space. It's spaceless. Well, if it's spaceless, then it's got to be immaterial. If all matter began to exist, whatever caused all matter to come into existence has to be something other than matter. That means it's immaterial. Another word for that could be spirit. Oh, I'm not touching the Bible. My Bible's right there. I'm not touching it. <laughs> oh, what ca whatever caused the space-time universe also has to be timeless. Whatever caused the clock to, to start ticking could not exist in a state of affairs where the clock was already ticking. Right? That means it's eternal. Not touching that book. <laughs> Just by using science and thinking logically, the cause of the universe is an eternal thing. Whatever it is, let's keep thinking. Oh, if it's eternal without beginning, then that means it's got to be uncaused itself. Nothing caused it to begin existing. 
whatever the cause of the universe was, just existed necessarily. And it's got to be extremely powerful. I can't think of anything that requires more power than creating an entire universe from nothing. The cause of the universe, whatever it is, is extremely powerful. And actually, I'm not going to get into this today, but I've written about it a lot on my website. We can make a strong case that the cause of the universe must be a mind, a thinking thing with free will. Like we talked about last week, (laughs) how we have free will. Whatever the cause of the universe is, I have argued, must possess free will. Well, what are the only types of things that possess minds and free will? Persons. (laughs) So by studying science and thinking logically about it, we can come to the conclusion that the cause of the universe is a personal being. Here's what's really cool. Science supports the existence of an extremely powerful, uncaused, immaterial, eternal, and supernatural, personal cause of the universe. And I still haven't touched that book right there. Oh, you think that's cool? Hold on tight. If the cause of the universe is personal, then it's at least possible that this personal creator of the universe could have a personal relationship with other persons. How many persons do we have here? Raise your hand if you're a person. Think that's everybody, okay? Well, guess what? Just by thinking logically, (laughs) examining science and thinking logically, we can come to the conclusion that it's at least possible for you to have a personal relationship with the cause and creator of the universe. Even if the Bible didn't exist, we could come to that conclusion. Oh, but guess what? <laughs> the Bible doesn't just tell us that it's possible to have a personal relationship with the cause and creator of the universe. It tells you how to have a personal relationship with the cause and creator of the universe. Whew. <laughs> This seems to be the God revealed in the Bible. And I haven't touched a Bible. Let's touch it now, okay? Uh, Psalm 8, 3, and 4. Let me summarize it. When I consider the heavens, the work of your hands, what is man that you think of me? Yet you do. The cause of this vast, enormous, beautiful universe desires a personal love relationship with each and every one of you, like we talked about last week. Give me goosebumps. What about you? Are you feeling this? Are you tracking with me? Oh, how great is our God. You know, Adrian tells me that it's his experience of nature, the experience of the stars and the rivers and the heavens, that most brings him to a sense of the grandeur of God. And and Adrian said this, we are wise to look up. We are wise to examine nature. Easy for a guy from Colorado to say. Yeah. (laughs) No, I think Nebraska is beautiful in its own way. You know, this reminds me of a a friend of mine now. I I, I gained in November, I was on an airplane to 
San Antonio for a, a theology and uh, philosophy conference. And this guy was from China. And we struck up a conversation. And he told me that he was raised in atheistic, communistic China. And from a little boy, he was constantly told that atheism is true. But there's some crazy people in the United States and in the West who believe in Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, the Tooth Fairy, and God. But he told me, although his parents, everybody from his parents to his professors were constantly telling him, atheism is true. He never believed them. <laughs> and I said, well, well, why? If that was all you were being taught, why wouldn't you believe them? And he said, because I looked at the stars. I would watch the sunset. And I knew there was an artist. I knew there was an engineer behind this. So I never believed him. I always knew God existed. And he's a Christian now. I said, well, how'd you become a Christian? He said, well, I was able to attend college at the University of Oregon. And shortly after I arrived on campus, a campus ministry group approached me and shared the gospel with me. And I, he said, I already knew this was true. I just didn't know the details. He'd never heard about Jesus. He never had access to a Bible. As soon as he heard the gospel, he was like, I knew this was true. I just didn't know the details. This is an example of Romans 1.20. And the Kalam, that argument, is another example of Romans 1.20. How God reveals himself through natural revelation. It simply appeals to logic and science. It does not touch the Bible or any other religious book. But, as we've seen, the attributes that we can rationally infer from that conclusion correspond perfectly with the way the Bible describes God. Huh. What do you know? Science supports the Bible. How about that? Now, you're probably out there thinking, well, you got to be a gifted student like me <laughs> to understand all this logic and science and metaphysics, right? Yeah, I can tell you from a young age, I was labeled as that gifted student. It was kind of a burden, heavy burden to bear, always being labeled as a gifted student. You know, from elementary school through high school and even into college, they were always calling me the gifted student. There's Tim, the gifted student, blah, blah, blah. I got tired of it because, well, every time I... Every time I got a C, that was a gift. <laughs> you see, nobody's ever claimed that Tim Stratton was academically gifted by any means. Right? I struggled a lot in high school. Even in college, during my undergraduate, during my undergraduate years. I struggled, but I spent a lot of time as a pastor when I realized that this is what the kids and really people of all ages were struggling with. I realized that I needed to spend some time thinking about these things because I felt like it was my duty as a pastor, as a shepherd, to be able to defend the sheep. I'll tell you what, I remember studying this stuff back when I was still working here in my office back there. I was studying the Kalam and it took me a while because I wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed. But when it finally clicked and I understood the science and the logic behind it, you know, <laughs> my mind was blown, my jaw dropped. 
I fell on on my knees in worship in my office and I began crying tears of joy. I I felt like I'd just seen a bigger and more beautiful picture of God, the creator of the universe. I felt his love for me too. Oh, you see, sometimes studying science can move us to worship. It can help us see a bigger and more beautiful picture of God. And I've also seen arguments like the Kalam quite often strengthen the faith of Christians, but also lead non-Christians, atheists, to Christ. You see, arguments like the Kalam are vital for evangelism in today's culture. I'll tell you what, I know of several people that attend this church that would not be coming to church. They wouldn't even be Christians today if it were not for arguments like the Kalam cosmological argument. I've seen it happen with my own eyes. The gospel doesn't make sense. to If you don't think God exists, the gospel is gibberish. <laughs> but the Kalam is like a wrecking ball and it knocks down this wall of lies that's been built up. And people can see the cross for the first time. People can understand the gospel. It starts to make sense. Let's get back to science. The third thing I want you to remember, if science ever causes you to doubt God, is that scientists are theologians. If they realize it or not. Consider the fact that some theologians study the word of God and other theologians study the work of God. I have close friends who are Christians and scientists, PhD scientists in physics and chemistry and biology around the country and even right here in Kearney, Nebraska at UNK in all those fields. You know, it was actually theologians who invented or discovered science. In fact, if it were not for the knowledge of God, science as we know it may have never come into existence. It was the presuppositions of the Christian theistic worldview that led to the scientific revolution that you and I enjoy today. The fathers of modern science, such as Roger Bacon, William of Ockham, Francis Bacon, Copernicus, Vesalius, Kepler, and Galileo, knew from the knowledge of Scripture that if a rational God created the universe, then the universe itself must be governed by rationally discernible and discoverable laws. If they were to take scriptures such as Psalm 19, 1 through 2 and Romans 1, 20 that we examined, if they were going to take those scriptures seriously, then there must be an order in which to conduct experiments and get observable and repeatable data, (laughs) the scientific method. The scientific age has arguably provided the most flourishing of humanity in the history of the world. It's important to realize that this was directly influenced by clear-thinking Christians. Thank you, Christians. (laughs) So you see, science is important. It should never cause you to doubt God. In fact, it should move you to worship Him. It should move you to worship Him. We don't sing a lot of traditional hymns at church these days. But I'd like to close with one this morning, if that's all right with you. (laughs) 
considering the study of God's creation, doing good science, let's also consider how great thou art. Will you join me in prayer? Oh Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, and I hear the rolling thunder, and thy power throughout the universe displayed. Oh God, how great thou art. I praise you for this magnificent universe that we can study. How great thou art. I praise you for your great love for me on this pale blue dot in the midst of this vast universe. I praise you for the love you have for me, this great love, how great thou art. When you're omni-everything and I'm omni-nothing, how great thou art that you would love me and love every single person as you do. How great thou art. Oh God, move us to worship, impact our lives, and help us to see a beautiful picture of you. I love you, God. Amen.